Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you tonight and we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your mercy that you shed upon us. And Father, we come before you as children desiring to know your will for our lives and desiring to serve you, to worship you and praise you and obey you. So I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us, and just bless us for this time that we're about to spend, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight, you are looking at one of the wealthiest men in the world. So you might want to take out your smartphones and take pictures. And uh, you can post them to your Facebook accounts and say, I met the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest men in the world tonight. Because I truly am one of the wealthiest men in the world. Uh, but I do not own my own home. Uh, I pay rent every month. I don't own a home. Uh, I do not have a large savings account. Uh, I think the only reason the bank still deals with me is because I've been with them for 22 years. And they feel sorry for me and won't let me go. I, I told someone once, if somebody steals my identity, they'll bring it back. They'll bring it back and say, here, here's a few dollars. Put this in your bank account, would not it? I do not have great possessions. Uh, I don't drive the fanciest car in town. I don't, I don't own $1,000 Armani suits, and I don't have great possessions. So some might say, well, how can you say then that you are one of the richest men in the world? And of course, the answer to that question will differ. Uh, depending upon the value system of the individual that you ask. But I think it is important here to stress that Scripture does not equate wealth to material possessions. I'd like you to turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Real easy to find. It's right close to where you are. And we'll read beginning at verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supporting that gain is God, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after... They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, 
faith, love, patience, meekness. Notice with me that Paul here admonished Timothy to avoid, to eschew the wealth and riches of this world. But he encourages Timothy to follow after or to pursue some things. He, he encouraged him to pursue righteousness. Righteousness, which is purity of and conformity of one's heart to the divine law of God. He told Timothy to pursue godliness. Godliness, which is an adherence to God's law, proceeding from our love and reverence for the divine character of God. He said, pursue faith. Faith is the ascent of the mind to the truths of God based solely upon his authority, immutability, and veracity without evidence or tangibility. He said to pursue love, love which is complete and total affection and acceptance of an individual. He said to pursue patience, patience which is a calm temperament which bears the actions of others without discontent or without murmuring. He said to pursue meekness, meekness which is a life lived with the absence of pride, arrogance, or selfishness. These are the things that we, as God's children, are to seek. These are they that we should long to possess in our life. And these are the characteristics that if you and I possess, this is the heritage we need to give our children. This is the inheritance we need to pass on to them. Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, the older I get, the more I hate money. I don't know about you. I despise money. Money is the reason for all of the violence in this world. Greed and envy and jealousy is the cause of so much grief. And at the root of all of it is money. Now, money surely serves purposes. Um, Brother... Petro here, Brian, he's, he's in, in, in this group called the International Monetary System. And I like it. It's barter. And it's the old, you scratch my, your, my back, I'll scratch your philosophy. And, and you know, I was quite surprised at how many businesses are actually involved in that now. You know, it's, you don't have to have, necessarily have to have money. Now, I wish, I wish PG&E was on the barter system. That would be great. <laughs> but they're not. I tried to pay them last month in barter money. and they, No, I didn't actually. I thought about it, but anyway. Send them script. I don't think they'd take it. But Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. And, and certainly as Christians, we realize that we need money and we have to have money to to pay our bills and to, 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 to finance the work of Christ. But money shouldn't, shouldn't consume our lives. And, and we should see money for, the, for, for what it really is. It, 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 is a, it is a tool of good, but it's also a tool of evil. Uh, so does this mean then that Christians cannot or should not be wealthy? Well, of course not. Uh, there have been many Christians that were very wealthy men. And they use their wealth to further the cause of Christ in America and around the world. 
So there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Um, There's nothing wrong with a Christian being wealthy. However, it's what one does with that wealth that is applicable to 1 Timothy chapter 6. But the context of my message tonight is not material wealth. I'm not not interested in talking about material wealth. I want to focus on something much more important. Look with me. You should still be there at 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 again. Look what it says. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And you could, in parentheses next to the word great gain, you could put the word wealth. Godliness with contentment is wealth. By godliness, Paul does not intend to to attribute any particular attribute. Rather, he is referring to the collective fruit of the Spirit of God. And what is the fruit of the Spirit of God? Well, Galatians chapter 5 tells us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And I want you to notice the the third word in that verse, but the fruit. That word is singular. Uh, You can't have have love, joy, peace, but no long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, or faith. Uh, you, You have to have them all. It's a fruit. It's singular. And the Christian that is walking in the Spirit of God possesses all of these particular characteristics. And this is what Paul is referring to when he talks about, about godliness. He's not, he's not talking about some things and not others. He's, he's saying if you are a godly person, then you will possess the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And as I've already mentioned, it is these attributes, it is these attributes that we are to pursue in our Christian walk. It is these attributes that the wise child of God will account as his or her riches or his or her wealth. So first tonight, I I want to establish the premise of what I refer to as wealth. It's not in corruptible things. It's not in things that, as the Bible states, moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break in and steal. You see, the things that I consider rich tonight, the the things that I consider my wealth, no thief is interested in stealing because it has no marketable value. Rather, I believe that our wealth is established in those things that neither moth nor rust can corrupt, neither thieves can break in and steal. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, Jesus said, there will your heart be also. So I guess my question tonight is, where is your treasure? What is your wealth tonight? This is important for you to know because Jesus said that your heart and your treasure are in the same place. Our treasure, our wealth should not be tied up 
in things that will be dissolved. We read it a moment ago in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul stated in verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I've heard it said many times, you never see a U-Haul connected to the back of a hearst. Solomon, in his wisdom, talked about all those things that we amass on earth are going to belong to someone else when we pass away. Because we're not bringing any of it with us. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not, I'm not saying tonight we, ought to, we should all live in poverty. I, I believe that you should live in the finest home that you can afford to live in. And I believe you should drive the nicest car that you can drive. And I believe you should dress the best that you can. And you can look at me and tell that I believe you should eat well. But I've got a second part here that's not applicable to me, to promote your health. We Cajuns don't eat healthy. I don't know if you knew that or not. But we should do all these things, but not at the cost of living in godliness, as Paul admonished Timothy. I know Christians who are more concerned with their physical comfort and possessions than they are the spiritual aspects of their lives. And these physical and material possessions are their treasure. And therefore, their heart is tied up in those same temporal things. And this is not God's will for his children. So tonight, and now I got some bad news. I told Brian earlier, I got bad news tonight. See, this was the message. If you were only going to come to one message today, this was the one to come to. But we're not going to finish it tonight. If you want to hear the end of this message, you're going to have to come back next Sunday night. Because pastors asked me to preach for them next Sunday evening also, so I'm going to finish this message next Sunday night. Tonight we're going to begin it, but you'll have to come back next Sunday night to hear the end. So I should have told you that this morning, but I'm sorry. I'm, I'm devilish when it comes to that. So let's look at the riches that we have in Christ. I, w- I, want, to, I want to, and of course, I'm going to give you, I don't know, about six things by the time we're done. And this is not all of the things that we have in Christ, but these are some that I think are, are, are very prevalent. So what, what are our riches in Christ? Well, first of all, tonight in Christ, we have the grace and mercy of God. My, what a, what a valuable possession this is, to have the grace of God. You know what grace is? Grace is God giving us that which we do not deserve. Things like salvation, sanctification, justification, glorification. We don't deserve those things. Not by any means. But God gives them to us as his children. And you know what mercy is? Mercy is God withholding that which we do deserve. Things like eternal damnation in the lake of fire, judgment, punishment. These are the things we do deserve, and these are the things that God withholds from us. But he gives us all the things we don't deserve, and that is his grace. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, Paul writes, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace (laughs) ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. If you, as you sit here tonight, if you are a recipient of the grace and mercy of God, then you are rich beyond any imagination you could possibly have. I cannot possibly imagine what could be worth more than the grace and mercy of God. Does anyone, can anyone tell me what is worth more than God's grace and mercy? I can't, I can't imagine anything because God's grace and mercy are things that you cannot buy. You cannot purchase them. All the gold in the world cannot purchase one ounce of God's grace. Scripture declares the grace of God to be great. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 33, we read, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. God's grace is beyond explanation. I I mentioned it either in Sunday school or morning service. I can't remember, but I decided one year to teach our teenagers about the grace of God. And after 46 lessons on the grace of God, I became exhausted with the study and changed the subject. I wasn't even close to touching. It it is just beyond explanation. Even, Even that which we understand cannot adequately describe the grace of God. We simply, with our finite minds, acknowledge the greatness of the grace of God. But the Bible also, Scripture also declares God's grace to be rich. In Ephesians 2, 7, we read that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I think Paul best summed it up. I think he best summed up the unfathomable riches of grace of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9, when he wrote, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But praise be the Lord that God reveals to us through the Holy Spirit the truth of the riches of his grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10 we read, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things, of God. So God's grace is by scripture described as great, described as rich, thirdly it's described as all sufficient. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, Paul writes, and he said unto me, <laughs> my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What more could we ask for? What more can we need than to have the grace, the favor of God the Father? God's grace is sufficient for all that we need. I think of the song 
My faith has found a resting place. And the chorus in that song goes, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. The grace of God is, is great. It's rich. It's all sufficient. And then fourthly, the grace of God is described as abundant. In Romans 5.17, we read, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now, let me remind you that the grace of God, given through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, will never be exhausted. It will never run out. It will never run short. And it will never fail. Oh yes, the, the grace of God is, is great riches indeed. God's grace will accomplish exactly what he has willed that it will accomplish in our lives. Nothing more and nothing less. And he that is under the great, this grace is blessed beyond measure. So firstly tonight, when I consider my riches in Christ... I must declare that I am rich in the grace and mercy of God. But also in Christ we have, number two, the promises of God. The promises of God. Now I'd like for you to, if you would, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's all turn together. 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll read the first four verses of Second Peter chapter 1. And we read here, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So we see here in verse 3 that we've been given, we've, we have been given, not we will be given, but we have been given all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now Peter here called the promises of God great and precious. And indeed they are. I mean, think about it. There are many promises to the believer in Scripture. And, and I, I wouldn't have time to go through all of them. Uh, th- there's the abundant life, a crown of life, a heavenly home, a new name. He's promised us answers to prayer. He's promised us assurance. He's promised us cleansing, clothing, comfort, companionship, deliverance, divine sonship, everlasting life, fellowship of Jesus, fruitfulness, gifts of the Spirit, glory after death. He's promised us God's protection, God's care. He's promised us growth, guidance, hope, inheritance, joy, knowledge, liberty, peace, 
power for service, renewal of spirit, rest, restoration, resurrection, rich rewards. He's promised us spiritual fullness, spiritual healing, spiritual light, spiritual treasures, strength. He's promised us temporal blessings. He's promised us understanding, victory, wisdom. And that's just a short list. However, since I only have this Sunday evening and next, I can't take the time to review each one of these in detail. You'll have to do that on your own. So I'm going to try to lump them into five different categories. But before we begin this, allow me to state the obvious. A promise is a commitment from one person to another with the intent to bring to pass that which is committed. When my wife and I were married on September 13th, it was a Saturday, not a Friday. I wouldn't get married on Friday the 13th. But when we got married on September 13th in 1980, we stood there and I held her hands as I promised to love her and to cherish and to honor her above all things until death us do part. I made her that promise and she made the same promise to me. And we intend to keep that promise. So we understand what a promise is. It's a commitment. And by its nature, a promise is something that we all expect will be honored. But with men, we know that this is often not the case. Men break their promises, don't they? However, God never breaks a promise. For a broken promise is nothing less than a lie. And we know that God does not and cannot lie. In Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, we read, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Therefore, we can all with confidence know that God will honor all of his promises So what are the promises of God? Well, as I mentioned, that long list I gave you, which is actually a short list, is way too in-depth for me to go into. So I'll, I'll break it down into five categories. First, we have the promise of eternal life. Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. I love science. How many of you like science? I love science. And I enjoy watching some of the science programs on on television. However, when I watch programs involving the universe and the origin of man, I am amazed at how ignorant. I I, I had put the word stupid in there, but I, I looked it up and I realized that's not right. They're not stupid. They're ignorant. So I switched it for the word ignorant. I'm amazed at how ignorant these highly educated men and women really are. And you might say, well, Brother Dalton, that is a very unkind thing to say, to call someone ignorant. And probably you're right. Perhaps it's not the most tactful or politically correct statement. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think God has the same view of these men. Listen to what God writes in Scripture. Romans 1.22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 
Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The God who does exist, the God who cannot lie, it is that God that has promised us eternal life. And he cannot lie. And we can, we can have earnest expectation in eternal life. And all I can say to that is praise the Lord. We have the promise of eternal life. Secondly, we have the promise that we will be heirs with Christ. We'll be heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Imagine if Bill Gates adopted you tonight. Hmm? Imagine if Bill Gates came along and he adopted John. He said, I like you. I'm going to adopt you. You'll be my son. Now John has all his wealth, right? Everything that belongs to Bill Gates now belongs to John. Hey, that's pretty cool. Now, don't, don't look at me like a calf looking at a new gate. You guys know Bill Gates adopted you tonight. If, if Bill Gates adopted Leno, he'd cut court wheels, I tell you right now. <laughs> Leno's the tightest man I know. He's so tight when he walks, he squeaks. I love you, brother. Well, Paul said we're heirs with Jesus Christ. We've been adopted by God. Everything that God has is ours. Wow, that's, that's incredible. And how in the world can we not be happy? And how in the world can we not understand the riches that we have when we are the heirs of God the Father? Revelation 26, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now if God, who is rich in all things, has promised us the riches and glories of his eternal kingdom, then why would we squander our life begging for the crumbs that fall from the world's table? We sang a, a song a little while ago, uh, what was it, Mansion, um, I've Got a Mansion. You know, if, if God asks me to, to dwell on this earth and, and live in a humble home, and he's promised me that, as we'll discuss in a moment, that, that I'll have a home with him in heaven, what, why should I be concerned with my home here? I, I, listen, you know, the older I get the less attached I am to this planet called Earth. I, I think of the song often, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's golden shores, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Now, I've got things holding me here. I love my wife, and I don't, I don't want to leave her. I love my children, and 
I, I enjoy so much spending time. I love my grandson. Oh, do I love my grandson. I never knew life could be so good. Grandsons are great. And now I'm asking for a granddaughter. <laughs> God, has, God has promised us so much. Why are we so concerned with the feeble things of this earth? So we have the promise of eternal life. We have the promise that we will be heirs with Christ. Thirdly, we have the promise of rewards. Colossians chapter 3 And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Now, I do not say today that our only motivation to serve the Lord is that we will receive rewards. In fact, unless the works that we do are done in the right spirit, we will, in fact, not receive rewards for the work that we've done. So it is important that we understand that we serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth, the rewards for such labors notwithstanding. But God has promised to reward those that serve him in the name of Christ. I agree wholeheartedly with King David concerning my desire. There's only one reward I want. And David talks about it in Psalm 27 and verse 4. David writes, One thing have I desired of the Lord, That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. That's my one desire, is that I'll be able to, for all eternity, look into his beautiful face and stand in his wonderful presence. That's reward enough, just to be with Jesus. The greatest reward we will receive is to dwell in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. So we have the promise of rewards. And then, fourthly, we have the promise of forgiveness of sin. John tells us in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is a promise made only to the children of God. For God will not forgive the sin of the lost soul. Rather, he will require payment for their sin at the great white throne judgment as they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. But to we, the children of God, we have the joy and comfort of knowing that our sins are forgiven and that God will remember them no more. As he states in Jeremiah chapter 31, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall teach uh, no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the last of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. This is indeed a great blessing. To know that God forgives and forgets our sins. So we have the promise of, of uh, sorry I, I'm, I went blank. The promise of eternal life. 
the promise of heirs with Christ, the promise of rewards, the promise of forgiveness of sin. And then lastly tonight, and probably one of the greatest of all, is we have the promise that he will come again. John 14, one through, verses 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I can think of no greater promise than this tonight. The promise that Christ will not leave me here nor forsake me. He will not forget me. But that he is coming again to take me home with him to heaven. And this is such a comfort to us tonight. In the years I've been at Berea, and I've, I've been here 22 years now. And then in that time, we've said goodbye to a lot of our dear loved ones. We've, we've got a lot of our members, former members, who have gone on to be with the Lord. And one day there's going to be a great reunion. It's going to be a great reunion in heaven as we stand together. And as we rejoice with them in the presence of Christ. And there's great comfort in this. There's great comfort in, in, in knowing that our loved ones, we will be together again. Such a comfort this is. Such a comfort to know that... Have you ever heard someone mocking God? Oh, that makes my skin crawl. That fires me up. And trust me. I'm not the kind of person you want to fire up. Because there's a side of me that no man has seen, save God alone. But it just, it grinds me so badly when people make fun of God, mock God. And, and I, I, sometimes I say, God, why are you letting them do this? It reminds me of the story a preacher told once about some guy standing there and Saying, if God is, if there's a God, let him strike me right now. Let him just strike me down. And the story goes that this went on for several minutes, and all of a sudden, they heard footsteps coming across the stage, and everybody looks, and there was a, a little boy about this tall wearing a football helmet. And he ran, and he bowled that guy right over. He took his helmet off, and he looked at him, and he said, God is busy, he sent me. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like that little guy. But what a comfort it is to know that in the end, the mockers will stop mocking. The scoffers will stop scoffing. The haters of God will be brought to humility. For Isaiah 45, 23 tells us, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. The promise of Christ's return. It is this tonight that gives us strength and hope. 
And there are many, many promises of God. And we are rich in those promises. So we are rich tonight. So don't go home and, and sit in your, in your house and feel sorry because your, your TV is only 60 inches and not 96 like your neighbor's. Don't feel bad because you only got one car in the driveway and not three. Don't feel bad because you don't have an in-ground pool in your backyard. Don't feel bad because your 401k is in the hole. You are rich tonight. Aren't you? We're rich. We're rich tonight in the grace and mercy of God. We're rich tonight in the promises of God. And next Sunday evening, I'm going to continue. And Lord willing, I'm going to give you four more things, that, four more thoughts that he's given me. But let's go out here and let's, let's rejoice and be happy. As Paul said, I have learned to be content. I'm ha-, Paul said, I'm happy whether my purse is full or whether my purse is empty. I'm happy if there's food in my fridge or there's no food in my fridge. I'm happy if my car is running or if it isn't running, <laughs> Brother Dave. And if anybody can help Brother Dave, you ought to do it. He's, he's having some car trouble, and he's a great mechanic, but he could, he could show you some help right now. So let's, let's help him if we can. But Paul said, I'm content. I'm happy. I know, Paul said, I know, how to be, I know how to be full, and I know how to be abased. But I've learned in whatsoever state I am, I'm going to be content, and I'm going to be happy. And tonight, we are, we are rich. We are rich in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are rich beyond belief. We don't even understand. We don't even know how rich we really are. Because, as Paul said, we have no, we have no understanding of all the things that you've prepared for those that you love. But help us, Lord. Help us to be content. Help us to learn to be happy with what we have and where we are. Just to be content knowing that we are serving you. And to rejoice and be joyous in the riches that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for all that have come out tonight. We pray you'd, you'd bless us as we go through this week. And, and we'll thank you and praise you for all these things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing.